Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. I think for a lot of parents, the MO has been, I want to get my son and my daughter uh, a Bible, I want to get them baptized, and then I'm not going to have to worry about them anymore until I have to teach them how to drive, and then we get them a driver's license, and then my work as a parent is done. Now, that's the simplified version, but, but the Christian parent version, I think, you know, kind of has some of that in it. And uh, so if that was your experience and you got your first Bible and it didn't come with any instructions, right? Nobody told you how to do it. Nobody told you that this big book, probably the biggest book that you have in your library, um, is actually arranged around three different agreements. Nobody probably told you that. And they're called covenants. And I was pretty much told that, and, and you probably were too, that this is God's word. It's all true. And do not set anything on top of it, right? That's kind of the instructions that we got with the Bible. And you respect it, and you revere it. You don't read it a whole lot, but, you know, it, you have one. And most people have one. But nobody told me that it was, it was basically divided into these three sections and that um, it was written to three different audiences, really, and, and um, it has a very specific historical context and that it's sequential and that there's a storyline and that the story moved along and what was important becomes less important because something more important comes along. Um, and there are three different groups. There was an individual to whom a big promise is made and then there was a covenant made with a nation and then there's a covenant made with the world. Um, Abraham was the individual with which the first covenant was made and then Israel is the nation with which the, in which the second covenant is made, and then we are the world. God made a covenant with us through Jesus. And so the reason that this wasn't explained, and part of the reason is because we were kids. I mean, it's hard to get kids to understand something like this. You're talking about covenants, and like, what is that? And most kids, they check out the minute you say something like that. We just basically didn't care. But at some point, somebody should have told us this stuff. And I think that the fact that this is not explained to us the way we're talking about it in this series is one of the reasons that so many people, after they got their Bibles and they were baptized and they prayed the prayer, I think that because this wasn't explained to us very well is the reason that so many people, when they hit their 20s or their 30s uh, or adulthood, college, you know, and graduate school, they, they either left their faith, they lost faith, or they're in the process of losing faith. You know, one of the things that we know happens is we raise up these kids, we send them off to the university, they run into a, 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 an atheist or a, a hostile-to-God philosophy professor or a biology professor, and they're out to disprove everything about Jesus and God, and they waylay our kids, and our kids come back and say, I don't know if I believe in Jesus anymore. And, and, you know, and then the parents come to me like, you know, and that's about the time I go, we're getting there. Because you you got you to... Gotta, you got to come face to face with those kind of things and wrestle with them. And it's possible that you're here this morning and you're with your wife or you're with your husband and you haven't told them yet. They don't know this. But in your mind, what you're thinking is, yeah, I'm, I'm about done with this. I don't, I'm not sure I believe anymore. And I, you know, I, I, don't, I can't tell her. I, I don't know. I can't tell him. I don't know what he'd say if I told him that. And the reason that you're done with this, it's not that you're angry, it's, it's, it's just that you don't believe anymore. And chances are, if you're like a lot of Americans, you have lost or are losing faith because of something in or about the Bible. And if you're losing faith because of something in or about the Bible, especially the Old Testament, I just can't tell you how glad I am that you're here this morning to hear this message because I think that perhaps you have lost or are losing faith unnecessarily. So today we're going to talk about one of the most overlooked and least taught about narratives in the New Testament. And you just need to understand, this is important language. When I say New Testament, I'm not talking about the whole Bible. In fact, going forward, one of the things you're going to hear me say when I preach a lot more is I'm, I'm going to refer to the Old Testament as the Hebrew Bible, and you'll hear me refer to the New Testament as the Christian Bible. I think that's the way we really need to start talking about these books and seeing them as, as the Hebrew Bible and the, and the Christian Bible. Um, the, I'm talking about this collection of ancient first century books that, that got put together later on. We didn't have these in, in a book form, in a collection, until about uh, 4 AD. And one of those documents was called Acts. Uh, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and Luke tells us what happened 
um, 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So it basically starts with the resurrection and it, it, it takes the next 30 years. And in his explanation of what happened in the early church, there is a meeting. There's like a church council meeting or it's almost like an elders meeting uh, that is so important because it defines our relationship with the Old Testament. And because that relationship has not been clearly defined for you, or perhaps it has been misdefined for you, it may be one of the things that has tripped you up. And so hopefully today it's helpful. In this series two weeks ago, we discovered that when the church launched, the foundation of the early Christians was not a book. They didn't have one. They didn't have a Bible. It wasn't the Old Testament or the Old Covenant or what they would call the Law and the Prophets because that really didn't tell the story of Jesus. The foundation of faith for the early church was an event. The foundation of faith was the resurrection of Jesus. This is where they got their traction. This is where they got their faith, their courage, their, their fearlessness. This is why they believed. This is what they preached. And the very first Christians were all about the resurrection because they had experienced this event. They were eyewitnesses to what, what, they, you know, what they were talking about. Last week, we learned that the early church was very Jewish. The early Christians, the first Christians, were almost all Jewish. Uh, not only that, they pretty much stayed in Judea. They really, most of them were centrally located in Jerusalem. And, and maybe a few migrated north to Galilee, but they were very Jewish. They had embraced Jesus as Messiah and the teachings of Jesus, but their consciences were still hardwired to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. They, they were still tied into the law and the prophets, and, and, and they were hardwired into what they had been taught what had been drilled into them as youngsters growing up. The same way that there are certain things that you do, you probably have a habit or something that you do that your mom or your dad drilled into you. And here you are, a grown man or a grown woman, and you still do it that way. And if someone said, why do you do that? You'd say, because my mama told me I better do it that way, right? And it's just drilled into you. You grew up. You can't imagine not doing it that way. Why do you, you, know, why do you wash that dish before you wash that dish? Well, because that's the way my mama did it. And, and you, you couldn't change it. You know, it's really hard for you to change it because you are hardwired that way. Consequently, they had the law of Moses and they had been raised on God's covenant with Israel. And then they get this, they come into this new time with Jesus and, and Jesus establishes this new thing and it was very difficult for them to not mix and match the covenants, okay? It was a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Moses. A little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Moses. And eventually... They broke that habit, but it would take them about 20 years to do that, and I'm saying that we need to break that habit as well. So here is where we left off last week. The Apostle Paul, that we first come to know as Saul of Tarsus, and eventually he becomes um, uh, Paul, or the Apostle Paul, or we just call him Paul, um, he's in the city of Antioch, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. He has joined Barnabas up in Antioch, and he's helping Barnabas evangelize and teach, and I, I suspect that they're, you know, they refer to it as the church, but if I had to guess, I'd say there was probably more than one meeting in houses. There were several believers up there, and so, you know, they're up in Antioch trying to lead the Christians in Antioch, and Antioch is primarily a Roman and Greek city, and there were very few synagogues up there. There were a couple, but there weren't a lot, so you had some Jews that were up there, but most of the population of Antioch are Gentiles, which means they weren't Jews, okay? They weren't Jewish. They didn't, under, they didn't have the covenants. They didn't understand any of that stuff. And so they're in this Gentile city, and Paul and Barnabas are killing it. And people are coming to Christ like crazy, and these Gentiles are giving their life to Christ. And, and they're up there telling people that God has done something in the world 300 miles to the south in Jerusalem, and it's for the whole world. And Gentiles are embracing the message of Jesus, and they have decided to become Jesus followers. And the message of Paul and Barnabas is really very simple. God sent his son into the world to pay for your sins, and if you will make him your savior and follow him, um, you can be saved. And these Gentiles are like, hey, we're in on that. That sounds way better than the paganism we were brought up to believe in. That sounds way better than the gods we've worshiped our whole life growing up. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, if this was a movie, you'd hear the music change, dun, 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 right? The mix and match Jewish Christians, what we referred to last week as the um, circumcised believers. 
circumcised believers, which means they're Jewish, they're hardwired to the Old Testament, but they've embraced Christ, and they're trying to mix and match, okay? So they're back in Jerusalem. What I'm talking, there's two things going on. We got Antioch up north where the Gentiles are coming, have nothing to do with Judaism, and then you've got Jewish believers, circumcised believers in, in Jerusalem. They find out what's being taught by Paul and Barnabas up in the north in Antioch. So they, they find out that, that the message of Paul has nothing to do with the Old Testament. They find out that Paul's not really teaching them from the Old Testament. And they say, oh, no, 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 we, we can't have that. These, these Gentile believers, when they come to Christ, they've got to get in line with the Old Testament. They've got to get in line with the law and the prophets and do what the law and prophets say. So they send, I don't know if it's a delegation or one guy, I don't know how it was, I, I, I think it's probably a group. They send a group of people up north to basically be missionaries and to go preach behind Paul, um, which is a huge insult, right? It's like, it's like me preaching, and then after I leave, you guys bring in another preacher who comes in and says, everything he just told you is wrong. Well, that'd make me mad, right? That would make any preacher mad. Well, Paul and Barnabas are up there preaching their hearts out, and this, these guys come up behind them and say, hey, what they're telling you is wrong. You've got to follow the Old Testament. You've got to, you've got to act like a Jew to become a Christian. And their message is basically keeping the law of Moses is a condition for salvation and inclusion. If you're going to be a Jesus follower, if you're going to be saved from your sin, if you're going to get the full benefit of his death on the cross for you, and if you're going to be included in the church, you have to keep the law of Moses. So there's all this drama, and I'm going to pick up the story this morning in Acts chapter 15. Um, We're going to start at verse 1, Acts 15, verse 1, if you have your Bible with you. Here is what happens, and I I hope you have a pen because there's some stuff worth taking notes on in this. Acts 15, verse 1, here we go. Big deep breath. Certain people came down from Judea uh, uh, to Antioch, and it says they went down from Judea to Antioch. Actually, they're going north, and there's a reason that it's written that way, but I don't have time to get into it with you. Um, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. And they're teaching the Gentiles who have already put their faith in Jesus, but they're teaching them something different than Paul and Barnabas have been teaching. And here's what they're teaching. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, for Jewish people, circumcision for men was the mark of the covenant. That's how you knew that you were in covenant with God. You, you know, little baby Jewish boys are born. One of the first things that happens is they would circumcise them. So if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, and somehow you come across the message of Judaism, and you think, I would like to be, I'd like to get into Judaism. Well, the only way you did that, especially if you were male, the only way you did that, you had to have a surgery, okay? Which, I mean, it's just me, but that's quite a commitment, okay? Um, I'm just saying so these guys come along, and, and they come behind Paul, and they say, oh, Paul didn't tell you the whole truth. You need to have a surgery. This is going to be salvation by surgery. If you're going to be a good Jesus follower, you've got to get in on the law of Moses, and you've got to have the proof of the covenant, and you've got to be circumcised. And they're like, wait, you know, these Gentiles are up north finding this out for the first time, and can you imagine? They're like, wait a minute, okay? Where's Paul? Uh, Paul, where are you? Like, buddy, you got to come defend us here. I mean, this was kind of awkward, right? Like, you know, can you imagine this Gentile believers just come to Jesus and now he's taking his family to church in the minivan and they roll up and, and he's just been told that if he's going to be participating in all this, he really needs to be circumcised. And he comes rolling up in his minivan and he looks at his wife and kids and says, y'all go inside. I'm going to have to sit out here and think about this for a minute, okay? Because this is a big deal. I mean, I'm going to, they're talking about doing surgery on me. So, they're blending these, this secondary message that these Jews went up and taught. Is, it's a secondary message of they're blending the, the traditions of Moses with what they're teaching about Jesus. And they're like, wait a minute. Just because we start following Jesus doesn't mean we let go of the Old Testament. Doesn't mean we let go of the law of Moses. We're not doing that. And they didn't call it the Bible. They called it the law and the prophets. But they said, we're not going to abandon Moses. Verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So when Paul shows up, he's like, wait a minute, what are you guys doing? And now we've got a church fight on our hands, okay? Fun. Love church fights. Not really. 
And these poor Gentile believers, and there are hundreds of them, they're basically saying, listen, you guys need to come together and figure out exactly what we're supposed to do, and we really hope you come back with us. We're rooting for one over the other. And besides that, we, we know, and we learned this last week, that, that you, you Jews don't even like us. You don't even want us in your synagogues. You don't want us in your homes. You, you don't really embrace us. Paul told us this was simple. Paul told us that following Jesus was, was something simple. I don't, you know, I don't know the stories about Moses. I wasn't raised. I don't know anything about, a lot of these people probably didn't even know there was a Jewish, a, 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 an Old Testament, right? Like some of these Gentile believers that are coming to Christ, they come out of paganism. They probably have no idea what the Old Testament is or what it's about. And, and so we just think that, you know, they're saying, we just think that God has done something in the world amazing through Jesus and that he rose him from the dead and we're good to go. What's with all this? You've got to be more Jewish to follow Jesus. So this is a big, big deal. Verse 2, the second part. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The apostles, these are the guys who followed Jesus. They were there. Now this is really important. Why would they, up in Antioch, have to come all the way back down to Jerusalem to sort this out? And why would they need to meet with this particular group of men? And here's the answer. Because there was no Bible. There there was no scripture. There was no New Testament. Paul hasn't written any letters yet. Uh, We're pretty sure that that none of the Gospels have been written yet, and if they were, they weren't being widely circulated at this point. There really is no literature. They're kind of making this up as they go along. And, And by the way, this is just 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And the church is growing like crazy. But now there's a problem. These, these men are the only people who can sort it out, and they're in Jerusalem. So that's where they go. And by the time they get to this point in history, this is pretty cool. By the time we get to this point in history, the number one person in Jerusalem, the, the head of the local church in Jerusalem, is James, the brother of Jesus. That's pretty cool, because he didn't even believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. And so the the change in James is so great, and he's so respected that he assumes the position of leader in the church at Jerusalem. And, you know, I've said this before. Whenever I talk about James, this kind of comes up. But what what would your brother have to do to prove to you that he was the son of God? Think about that, right? I have a brother named Scott. I can pretty much tell you that there's nothing Scott could do that would make me think he was the son of God, okay? Okay. Uh, we would both get a big chuckle out of just even that I would utter such words. Scott would really think that was funny. But what would you have to do? James comes to the place where he sees his brother as the son of God. That's pretty significant, I think. Um, This is not 200 years after the resurrection. This is not 100 years after the resurrection. This is a mere 20 years after the resurrection. So this is the agenda that they're going to have for this meeting you got a group from Antioch that comes down to Jerusalem. You've got the Jerusalem group, and they're saying, listen, you have to keep the law. you got to get circumcised. you got to honor these old traditions. you got to do it the way we've always done it for all these years. And you've got the group from Antioch that's coming in, and they're saying, we don't think that's how any of this works. And they have this big meeting. Don't you love church meetings? Here we go. And here's what the agenda was for this first meeting. A Gentile's relationship with the law of Moses. That was the agenda. Let me put it in different terms. What's, what the agenda was, was your relationship with over half of your English Bible. That's what the agenda was. Your relationship with what we call the Old Testament. What should your relationship with the Old Testament be? And again, when I was growing up, they gave me a Bible and they said, it's all God's word, it's all true, all of it, do it all. And 20 years after the resurrection, the church is trying to figure out, is that true? Is it for everybody for all times? Do we keep all of it or do we keep part of it? And if we're going to just keep part of it, which part of it do we keep? Do the Gentiles have to live and behave like Jews to become Christians? So they're all together and they're all going to have this big council, this big like elders meeting. And here's how it went. Verse 5, then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. And you read that and you're like, what? Pharisees? Pharisees are in the early church? 
I mean, the Pharise- that, that's confusing. Because the Pharisees are the ones that were responsible for having Jesus arrested and crucified. The Pharisees are the ones that chased Jesus all around um, that part of the world trying to trick him and catch him in lies, and, or not lies, but in stories and make a fool out of him in front of his disciples. And they, were just, they just constantly were harassing Jesus. But 20 years after the resurrection, we find that a bunch of these Pharisees have now converted and are now followers of Jesus. To which you ask the question, what do you think changed their mind? What, what would cause that to happen? Is it because they heard the Sermon on the Mount? No. Did, did, they, did they hear the, the story of the prodigal son and that changed their mind? Nope. Was it maybe the, the story of the Good Samaritan? Nope. They saw him. They saw him crucified, and then they saw him raised. And even though they'd been good Pharisees and had been steeped in Old Testament tradition and law, the law of the prophets, they gave their life to Christ. And they said, we were wrong, because when someone predicts their own death and then they raise from the dead, we just kind of go with whatever they say. 20 years after the resurrection, there are Pharisees who are now leaders in the church. Why? Because they had embraced Jesus as their Messiah. Again, not 200 years, not 100 years. This is 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. But they are Pharisees, and they grew up in or near Jerusalem. They worked with people who grew up in or near Jerusalem, and they are hardwired into these Old Testament traditions and behaviors. And it's just really hard for them to let those go. And now they're trying to integrate some of that with Jesus. It's kind of a mix. It's a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Moses. They're mixing and matching. Verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, okay, this is the message of the circumcised believers. The Gentiles, these people that are in Antioch that are giving their life to Christ that came out of pagan religions, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And now a huge giant debate breaks out. Verse 7, after much discussion, just let me, if you've never been to a church meeting, just let me tell you, that's standard procedure right there, right? After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. What's Peter going to say? Now, if you are here last week, Peter had, had had kind of a come to Jesus meeting. Peter, 15 years after the resurrection, Peter still will not go into a Gentile's home, right? He's, he, he's come to Jesus He's trying to be a leader, but he still will not go into a Gentile's home. He still thinks that he's separate from Gentiles. He still thinks that Jesus is really just for the Jews. But because Peter's Jewish, he's hanging on to a little bit of Moses, and he's trying to blend in a little bit of Jesus. But he gets an invite to a Gentile's home, and he's like, you know what? I've never been inside a Gentile's home. And last week, we saw him basically (laughs) say to the Gentiles, Until yesterday, I considered all y'all impure and unclean, right? Like, I wouldn't even come into your house. But he eventually gets over that. Um, And he comes to a place where, you know, they could have said, you know, Gentiles could have said, what's all this about God loves everybody? And, And Paul or Peter, for the longest time, just couldn't get there. But about 15 years after the resurrection, Peter gets there. Now, Peter has awoken to the fact that God has done something new in the world for everybody. So Peter gets up in this meeting, and here's what Peter says to this group. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He would say, I was in Joppa minding my own business. Men came from Caesarea and invited me to come to this guy's house, and he was a Gentile, and I'd never been inside a Gentile's house, and I didn't want to go, but God said, no, you're going to go in there. You're going to eat with them. You're going to be with them. And, and he said, and you guys, some of you guys, you, you circumcised believers that are in this room, you were critical of me because I did that. And then he would say, but they believed. They believed in Jesus. They came to faith in Christ. Now listen to me. If you're here today and you've had a bad church experience, okay, or you're here today and you think to yourself, I'm just, Brett, I'm just not disciplined enough to be a Christian. Or or, or you would say, Brett, I've just got too much baggage. There's just too much in my past. I I can't be a Christian. I mean, God doesn't want anything to do with me. Listen, the next line from Peter, who knew Jesus, I want you to hear this line, God who knows the heart. 
God who knows the heart. God knows your heart. And God knows that you may have messed up, and you may have messed up royally, and God also knows that you're sorry about it. God knows your heart. God knows that you may have trouble you know, keeping in line with certain things. He knows your heart. He loves you. God who knows the heart. I think that's awesome. I love that. God who is able to look beyond all of the offensive Gentile ways. At least they were offensive to the Jews. God who knows the heart, who's able to look beyond behavior, able to look beyond background, able to look beyond baggage, able to look beyond an ignorance of the Hebrew scriptures. God who knows the heart shows that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. And it is impossible for us 21st century Gentile Christians to comprehend the seismic shift with these last six words, just as he did to us. Huge. You need to understand this. Your Old Testament, their law and the prophets was specific. God loves the Jews more than he loves anybody else in the world. And to be an enemy of the Jews is to be an enemy to God. That's why when you read the Psalms, it can be a little confusing. You ever read the Psalms and thought, man, this dude's all over the place, right? Like one minute it's like, God is good, and God, you're great, and I love God. And the next minute it's like, kill my enemies and destroy their crops. And you think, did David go off his meds? I mean, what, what happened to him? You know, like, what happened? Um, no, David was very consistent. We are God's chosen people, and God's going to bless us, and he's going to honor us, and we love God, and we have the right way of worship, and we have the right scripture, and everybody else is a pagan, and everybody else is an idol worshiper. And God destroy them, because as you destroy them, you are going to manifest your power, and they are going to know that God, our God, is bigger than their God. So you have to understand, the Old Testament culture is about warring clans. You have to understand that. That's the way they saw the world. That was their worldview. Their worldview was, we're going to go to war. You've got your God, we've got our God. Whoever wins, that's the God who is real. And so you see all these clans fighting with one another, basically for the glory of their God. And so God fits himself in to that warring culture in the Old Testament. That's just how they thought. That was the worldview. And they weren't incorrect. They didn't misunderstand their scriptures. That's just how the world was. But Jesus, this new worldview, this new world order is completely detached and new than anything that had ever come before. And it took Peter 15 years to finally realize God has thrown the door wide open to everybody. God has done something through the Jews for the rest of the world. But the through the Jews part of the story is over, and now we're in something new, and it's better, and it's inclusive. And what was once reserved for the Jews was now available to everyone, and this is the important part of that, apart from what the law of Moses taught, apart from the old covenant, apart from the, the, the covenant that God had made with Israel. So after this little speech, he asks him a question. He says, all right, guys, let's, let's just be real, okay? All the men, let, let's, can we just be honest? Can you imagine Peter in front of all these guys? And, and these guys are all pompous and pious and you know, think they, they know more than everybody else. And Peter's kind of trying to make his case. And, and, and he's, he's like, okay, guys, come on, let's be honest. Look what he says next, verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. In other words, guys, we can't even keep all this stuff. We have trouble keeping this stuff straight. How are we going to expect a bunch of people who didn't grow up with our scriptures, didn't grow up with our traditions, nobody's ever taught them this stuff, they don't know all the laws. How in the world, when we can't even keep it, how are we going to expect that they can keep it? And what comes next? is so subtle, but it is vitally important for us to understand. He says to these Jewish people, these, these Jesus-following people, some have completely left the old behind, others are still trying to do the mix and match Moses and Jesus thing, and he says, no, we believe it is through the grace. Now let me just stop there. That word right there is not a word that you read the Old Testament and come away saying a lot of. You don't read the Old Testament and come away and go, boy, that's a book of grace. You don't. 
See, when you read the Old Testament, the story of Israel, you don't see much of grace. What you see is, I will if you will. It's conditional. I will if you will. It's not about grace in the Old Testament. He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus. And here comes the subtle part, and this is so important. That we are saved just as they are. Implication, we Jesus following Jews must move in their direction and not expect them to move in our direction. He would say, I'm telling you, I was in the home of a Roman centurion and I saw God do for them exactly what he had done for us Jewish followers just shortly after the resurrection when he infused us and and filled us with the Holy Spirit. And he said, I was in Cornelius' home 20 years after the resurrection, 15 years after the resurrection resurrection, and I saw the Holy Spirit of God come into these men, and I'm assuming none of them were circumcised. I'm assuming none of them know anything about the book of uh, the law and the prophets, but I saw the Holy Spirit fill them, and God accepted them the same way he has accepted us, and it is time for us Jews to accept the fact that God has done and is doing something in them, and he's now doing something for the world, and we need to be a part of it even though it means setting aside and letting go of the scriptures that we grew up with our whole life. It took him 20 years, but Peter finally figured it out, that Christianity was not Judaism 2.0, that it was not an add-on, that it was a standalone, leave the past behind, embrace a new worldview, embrace a new system. Jesus was not an and, Jesus was an instead of. Not blending, not a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Moses, Jesus only. The law of Moses, God's covenant with Israel, was a means to an end. Now, Peter is done, and then James stands up, and everybody gets quiet when James stands up, okay? This is the brother of Jesus. This is the brother of Jesus. Okay, lock in. Everybody pay attention. James is going to speak, and James stands up, and he says, gentlemen, We should not be surprised by this. Our prophets predicted this. Okay, Our prophets foretold of a time that there would be a new covenant. The prophets told us that there was going to be a time established that the Jews would be a light to the Gentiles. This should not be something new to us. We should have seen this coming. And then he concludes with this statement. And this statement has been something that I have put on, the, on my desk, on my credenza, where I sit and type every day. I see this, I've seen this for about the last 15 or 20 years of my life, almost every day of my life, I have seen this passage of Scripture. He says, it is my judgment. In other words, I'm calling this meeting to a close, okay? It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That is... Are the march, those are the marching orders for this church. That is on my desk for a reason because I don't want to put anything, I don't want to put any obstacle in front of people to get them to come to Jesus. I'm trying to take obstacles out of the way, not put obstacles in the way, and that's exactly what James said. And within the context of this conversation, the implications of this are huge. Here's what he's saying. God's arrangements with Israel should now be eliminated from the equation. But what he says next is so astonishing and it's so disruptive and it has largely been ignored by the church and in a way I can kind of understand why we would do this because this is difficult for those of us who have grown up reading the Old Testament and thinking that it was just one big book because that's what we were told. This is James. This is Peter. These are the men who were right there, close to the action. We should take their word for it as it relates to the scriptures. Do you know what comes next? My guess is no, you don't know what comes next. What comes next defines your relationship with over half your English Bible. Now, before I tell you what it says, you got to remember 300 miles to the north are hundreds of Gentiles. Many of them are men, and they are anxiously awaiting the decision out of this meeting, right? Because uh, the men are particularly interested in what's going to come out of this meeting. Because if they come back and say, well, we voted, and yeah, you got to have a surgery. You know, these guys are going to go, you know, really hoping that wouldn't be the, the result. And so they're anxiously waiting to hear. And James says, we need to write them a letter, okay? 
We, we, we don't need to just say that this is what we said. We need to write a letter, put our name on it, send it up there so that they know there's some authority behind this. We need to write a letter, and this is what James says the letter needs to state. Instead, we should write to them telling them, well, check this out, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What? Yeah, that'll help them. That'll solve the whole problem. Tell them to abstain from meat, food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat, strangled animals, and from blood. And what this looks like is it looks like at first blush that James is cherry-picking from the Old Testament, right? It looks like James is cherry-picking from the law and prophets. You know, okay, we're not going to make them do all 600, but we got to make them do something, so we're just going to pick a couple. Let's see. You can't eat meat sacrificed to an idol, and let's make them behave themselves sexually, no sexual immorality. And I mean, it just looks like he's cherry-picking, but he's not. That's not what he's doing. Here's, the, here's his explanation for this strange group of Old Testament-ish commands. Verse 21, For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, listen, there are guys in Antioch who grew up Jewish. It's hardwired into them to be Jewish. And these dietary laws that they've been following their whole life, if you think you're, they're just going to gladly give that up and never do that again, you're crazy, okay? So you know, we're going we're gonna to give them some of these dietary laws and, and, and see how that goes. And so here's the question. Why would James suggest that they send that particular message to the Gentile Christians? I mean, why these? Why, why wouldn't he have said, oh, you know, why does he say, okay, um, let's see, Gentiles, let's see what we can do. Let's, uh, first of all, we're going to tell you, don't steal. Um, guys, what, what other kind of, what other kind of, things do we need to tell the don't murder that's good don't murder um what else um somebody else adultery nobody commit adultery he could have done it like that why the food thing And, and then this general statement about no sexual immorality what is the connection and this is really important those imperatives had nothing to do with keeping the law of moses they had everything to do with keeping the peace in the church. He was asking these new Gentile believers to make some dietary concessions for the sake of unity in the church because he knew that no matter what they taught, these Jewish people, these dietary laws were hardwired, right? Like, you know, the, the Jewish people in Antioch, the ones that had grown up in, the church, in, the, in Judaism, their response would have been, oh, I know I'm free in Jesus, and I know I can do this, and I know Paul had a vision, and I know what Jesus said, but I just can't eat pork. I can't eat shrimp. I'm sorry. I just, I've never done it my whole life. And the leaders are saying, look, tell the Gentiles, you make concessions like we're making concessions because we are going to have one church. We are not going to have two churches. Okay, we are not going to be divided. We're going to be one unified church. So we're both going to make some concessions. This was about keeping the peace, not about keeping the law. Now, real quick, I want to talk about this. He does this dietary thing, and then he comes along and he says, oh, yeah, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, here's what I know. If I were to give everybody in the room this morning a three-by-five card, and I were to say, give me your definition of what, sexual immorality is as many people as filled out that card that's how many different definitions for sexual immorality there would be because what's wrong to some might not be wrong to others and vice versa and so what he does you know you're gonna he says basically saying we're gonna send a message to a bunch of ex-pagans who went to temple prostitutes for crying out loud i mean these these guys some of them you'd think they were raised by wolves some of the stuff that they do they had a very different sense of morality than what, what you and I can, can really cop to. In fact, in, in most of the pagan religions, morality was never tied to pagan gods. As far as they were concerned, what the pagan gods wanted from them were sacrifices. You just offered sacrifices. And you had a civil law, but there was no moral religious code the way we have a, a moral religious code there was no religious morality it was just gods and sacrifices so to say to they say to this bunch of gentiles abstain from sexual immorality what does that even mean to them 
This was a general call to avoid immoral behavior, but not immoral behavior as defined by the Old Testament. Why? Because they didn't have one. They weren't Jewish. It was to be defined by the Apostle Paul who had been teaching in Antioch for better than two years. And do you know what the Apostle Paul consistently tied sexual behavior to? Not the Old Testament. Not the the Ten Commandments. He tied it to the one commandment that Jesus gave. You are to treat others the way God, through Christ, has treated you. So when Paul talked about relationships, he said stuff like, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. To which when people hear that, they're like, wow, I mean, that means i got to put other people ahead of me. Paul's teaching was something like this. In your relationship with one another, just remember, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so is his. And so is hers. Paul was very explicit and specific in his teaching on social interaction, but he did not ever tie it to the Old Testament. Consequently, this letter is going to make perfect sense when it shows up in Antioch, where the Apostle Paul has been teaching for over two years. So basically they're saying, in order for there to be unity in the church, let's not offend the Jewish sensibilities with these dietary things. Let's, let's recognize some dietary stuff, and let's make it easier for the Jews, because they're going to really struggle with this. And they'll eventually get past it. Eventually they'll grow out of it. It's eventually going to go away. And you need to take Paul's teaching on moral purity seriously, because that has the potential to divide you as well, because your backgrounds are so different. Paul tied sexual behavior to Jesus' new command. The old covenant law of Moses was not the go-to source regarding sexual behavior for the church. More importantly, and maybe even more disturbingly for some of us, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, was not going to be the go-to source for any behavior for the church. Here is what the Jerusalem Council would say to the Gentiles. You are not accountable to the Ten Commandments. You are not accountable to the Jewish law. We're done with that. God has done something new. He would say to them, and he would say to you and me, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments because those are not your commandments. Yours are better. And yours are far less complicated, and they are far more demanding. You say, Brett, what do you mean? Let me just give you an example. The Old Testament said, don't commit murder. Okay, I'm just looking out there, I don't see a bunch of murderers. Okay? But Jesus came along, and in the Old Testament it was just really simple, all i got to do is not murder somebody. But Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. I tell you, if you hate someone in your heart, you have committed murder. Now, you may have hated somebody, you may not have killed somebody, chances are you probably have hated somebody along the way, And Jesus said, you know what, that's the same as He did it again. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Okay? And a lot of you would say, I've never done that. Jesus comes along and says, I tell you, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery. And he put them on the same plane. See, it's, it's far less complicated, but it is far more demanding. See, when you begin to treat every single person you meet, no matter what their race is, no matter what their socioeconomic station in life is, when every person you come eyeball to eyeball with, you see them as made in the image of God and as a potential dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, you will treat them well. You will do for them what God through Christ has done for you. This is a new and better day. This is a historical, extraordinary day for the church. Church leaders who were close to the action, who understood this the way we never will, said, you know, church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value systems, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Not just how somebody came to Christ, but they unhitched the entire thing. (coughs) And so finally, 20 years after the resurrection, Peter And James and John and Barnabas, they've detached the church from Judaism, not because there was anything wrong with Judaism, but because Judaism, the law of Moses, was a means to an end. Besides that, the Old Testament predicted it. And besides that, in the the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus said, I fulfilled it. The Jewish scriptures are the backstory for the main story. <coughs> an important backstory, an inspired backstory. God on the move in ancient times. And at times it's violent, and at times it's disturbing, and it can often offend our modern sensibilities. But it is a fabulous story about God, the founder, who's playing by the rules of the kingdoms of this world to establish a kingdom that is not of this world. And he would send a king like no other king, a king who would lay his life down for his subjects and who would introduce the entire world to God the Father. Which means that Jesus' new covenant with the nations, with you and me, can stand on its own two nail-scarred feet. It doesn't need the Old Testament. Say, Brett, is this really that important? I mean, you have knocked yourself out for three weeks. You've preached till you're blue in the face. You've talked about this. Is it really that big a deal? Yes, and here's why. Because many people have lost faith because of something in the Bible or about the Bible, and particularly about the Old Testament. And once they couldn't go along with something that was in the Old Testament, you know, a professor comes along and says, you realize archaeology doesn't support that part of the Old Testament. You realize history doesn't line up with that. You realize that science has a dispute with some part of creation or something that is, is in the Old Testament. Once some people come face to face with that kind of heat, they lose faith because they were taught that it's all true and it's all God's word. And if you find one part that's not true, the whole thing comes tumbling down. And I can hear you right now. Brett, are you saying part of this isn't true? That's not what I'm saying, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But that's what other people are saying. And when the right people hear that, it creates a problem. Not so with Christianity. The Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus created and launched Christianity. Your whole Old Testament house of cards can come tumbling down. What am I saying? I'm saying, let's say they could disprove the Old Testament. I'm not saying they can, but let's say they could. And they took the whole Old Testament away from us. That's not what our faith is built on. Okay? Our faith is built on the resurrection. Someone comes along and says, well, I don't know that I believe that, that Noah had a, a uh, ark full of animals. Well, I'm not at, that doesn't, you believe in that doesn't save you. Okay? That's not a prerequisite to get into heaven, that you got to believe that the, that the animals were on the ark. We've made it that way, but the, the thing that Jesus made it about is, are you going to believe in me? Are you going to believe in the resurrection? Did Jesus raise from the dead? Now, for some, this has been liberating, and for some, like me, who were raised in the church, and who received our first Bibles with no instructions, it has been liberating. But I'll tell you the one for whom this has really been liberating. It's been liberating for men and women who are drawn to the simple message of Jesus, that God loves the world so much he sent his son to pave the way for a relationship with you and me. It's appealing to those who need and understand grace and forgiveness. And it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to live up underneath the standards of the Old Testament. And Peter and James are people who were on both sides of this. Paul, for crying out loud, was trying to kill Christians before he came to Jesus. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures, and we must as well, because we must not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to God. They didn't, and we shouldn't either. The faith of the next generation. Brett, why did you preach this series? Because the faith of the next generation may depend on our willingness to get this right. Now, I want to be clear. I, need to, I should have said this, probably should have said this at the beginning of the series instead of at the end. But I want to make sure that you hear me say this, okay? I'm not saying don't read your Old Testament. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that I don't believe the Old Testament. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm never going to preach the Old Testament again. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's not inspired and that it isn't Scripture. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying that there's great wisdom in the Old Testament. There are some principles and precepts that are taught there that we can take some great lessons for life. But I'm also saying, let's understand what it is and what it isn't, and it isn't something that our faith is built on. The resurrection is what our faith is built on. So the church was founded, fueled by the message of the resurrection and eyewitness accounts. And it was marked by unprecedented diversity and code of conduct that elevated the status of people who had up until that point had no status and reduced everyone to the status of sinner in need of a savior. It is exactly what Jesus predicted and exactly what he said he would build. And he said that his death nor the death of his disciples would defeat it, and they didn't. And here we are, believers in Jesus in the 21st century, hailing the remarkable action of the resurrection of Jesus. And that, and that alone, is what our faith is built on. If, they, if, if, if you're here and you're like, man, Brett, I just don't know if I can go with the Old Testament. I just don't, that, that story, that, I'm not asking you to buy into all that. I believe it. You may not. I'm asking you, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? That is what your faith is built on, okay? Don't get this mixed up. Don't try to do a little bit of Moses and a little bit of Jesus. It's all Jesus all the time. Our covenant is better. It's better. Let's pray. I'm going to pray and then you're going to be dismissed, okay? No ban. Father, um, I've taken my best shot. I've tried to be faithful. I've, I've tried to be obedient. And I've tried to be clear. And I pray, Father, that all of that has taken place. And I pray, Lord, as we leave today, that anybody who was maybe thinking about just walking out because they couldn't, they didn't understand it all, that hopefully today it's been made more clear for them. But Lord, the, 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 the powerful statement that is made today is that you died on a cross for our sins and you defeated the grave and you rose from the dead. And that's where my faith is. It's not in some Old Testament book. It's not in 613 laws. It's not in the Ten Commandments that Moses gave us. It is in the one command that Jesus gave us, that you love other people the way I have loved you. And you let that be your calling card. And you let that be the thing that you try to live up to every day of your life. And Father, that is a high, high standard. We need your grace to live up to that. I pray that we will, and I pray that the world will see the difference. pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.